0: Now, over the Christmas period, we've just had a, a short mini series on Paul's teaching about the birth of Jesus, about the incarnation. Uh, and this morning, we're going to finish that by looking at Philippians chapter 2. And from verse, <coughs> uh, we're going to look at from verse 5, but I want to read from verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Now, let me ask um, the boys and girls, first of all, not just the boys and girls, but all of us, what causes us to fight? Nathan, do you ever fight? No? Do you guys ever fight? Yes. Yes. And why do you fight? Because you're brothers. Because you're brothers. Okay. That's what causes us to fight. And if you're in the Christian church and you're thinking, why is the Christian church, why why do people fight one another? Because we're brothers and sisters. That's what families do. I agree with that. That is what we do because we fight. We do. But we also fight for different reasons. So we fight because we're proud. We've, some of you here are, are really mad with somebody else because they've hurt you and they've hurt you because they've denigrated you or knocked you down. Or we fight because we're jealous. Or we fight because we're greedy. We want something. We fight because we are self-centered. That occurs in every aspect of our life. I suspect that for many of you, going back to work, probably not next week, this week, but the week after, uh, will be difficult because there are troubles and tensions at work, and it's caused by people fighting with one another. I remember one teacher saying to me, I love teaching. It'd just be great if there weren't any kids. Um, a, A nurse who once said, I love being in the hospital. It'd be great if there weren't any patients. Um, we all may sometimes feel like that. Of course, as a minister, I never feel that I I love teaching God's Word. It would be great if there was no congregation. That's not what you feel at all. But we cause each other so much hassle and so much trouble. And actually, what the boys said, that you, you, you fight because you're brothers. We fight with people who are closest to us very often. And how do we deal with that? Well, Paul, in writing to this church in Philippi, is writing because, one of the reasons he's writing is because of trouble within the church where it appears that two women uh, were fighting with one another, Euodia and Syntyche, and that rippled throughout the church. And in this chapter, he cites what is probably an early Christian hymn about Jesus to show how we deal with that. And we're going to look at this in two parts. And the first part is this Christ's humility. Now, humility is a kind of strange virtue in in our culture in lots of ways because you can't boast about being humble, can you? I did actually hear someone this morning say, we humbly did this. Well, if you humbly did it, why do you say that you humbly did it? And we live in a culture, if you write a CV... You're not going to put it on it, are you? I'm really humble. In fact, the CV almost demands that you do the opposite. You have to say how great you are. And for some of us, that's, that's quite hard, not just because we know that we're not great, but also because we feel that it somehow goes uh, against this. So what do we mean by the humility of Jesus Christ? I was reading uh, this week, um, Athanasius saying this, The intangible, imperishable, and immaterial Word of God came into our world. In one sense, He was never absent from it. No part of His creation had ever been devoid of Him. He fills everything while continuing to dwell forever with His Father. But now He visits us, lowering Himself to our level to bestow His love on us. He saw our sin, He saw our slavery to death, and He came to free us from that. See, when we think about humility and we think about Jesus coming into the world... Please do not think of it in the way that so much charity is given today, where wealthy middle-class people go to poorer people and and basically say, look how wonderful I am that I'm helping these poor people. It's one of the things with Andrew, uh, with the work that they're doing in Charleston. Charleston's not the most salubrious area of Dundee, although I don't think people should talk it down either, because an area is made by its people, and... Uh, you'll get people who maybe when they hear of a church being planted in a poorer area, they say, oh, I want to go and help the poor. Well, there's something, I think, pr- almost profoundly wrong with that. I think the attitude is, of, of Jesus was not, I'm going to come down and help these poor people. I think he saw that what was wrong with humanity and what he did was hugely important because what you often find with people who are being patronizing, and Jesus wasn't being patronizing, is that they will, they will come and they will almost boast about themselves and offer something that they think is doing good, that earns them good points. And yet, in some, in some ways, it's often very demeaning. Um, charity in the biblical sense means love. That's the right way of using it. Charity in a way that's so often understood nowadays. It's not love. But Jesus Christ humbled himself. Now, let me just say three very, very simple things about that from this, from verses 5 to 8. First of all, Jesus Christ is God. These are really strong words, who being in very nature God, it's not just he appeared to be God, but he really is God. He was God before he became a human person. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by the way, that was written by a fisherman called John. But what is really fascinating about John is he was Jewish. And all Jewish people were taught, rightly, monotheism, the belief in one God. And John, to, to say that there were other gods, to say that anyone was God, was, was, was absolute blasphemy. John was an intelligent person. And yet he wrote at the beginning of this gospel that Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul writes in Colossians, And Paul was also a Jew. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, again also a Jew, by the way, claimed to be God. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, this is a very strange thing for lots of people to grasp because we're saying that there's one God. And along with the Jews and the Muslims, we say there is one God. But to them, it's blasphemy what we then say, that that one God is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in trying to explain that, in, In one sense, it's one of the hardest things to explain, and yet it's one of the most profound and most beautiful things. I like what Augustine said about this. When the question is asked what three, human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. There is one God But that one God exists in three persons. The persons are distinct, but they are the same. I was reading this in the the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which we sometimes use. In fact, we used earlier this morning in the confession. That one God, they are one in substance, essence, or nature. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, what we're saying, what the Bible is saying, what Jesus taught, is that there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He is the Son who came to earth, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, one of the things that I think any of us can grasp is that if Jesus is God, His position is the highest that could possibly be. And yet he came down to the lowest. Adam, as man, sought to be God. Jesus, as God, became man. It doesn't say that he, he, he sought to be God in the sense that he um, wanted to be God but gave up the search. It means what someone already has but chooses not to exploit Or take advantage of. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So, what did Jesus become? Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus became man, verse 7. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He became man. He became Anthropos. He is the new Adam. He was made in human likeness, which doesn't mean that it was a likeness without the reality, it was real. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. In one of the most misunderstood phrases, he emptied himself. We, we, we sometimes sing this, and I think it's wrong actually. He emptied himself of all but love. Well, it doesn't mean that he ceased being God. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself even of the godlike characteristics such as being omnipotent. It means something different here. It means of no reputation. And here it's reflecting the entire self-giving of God, of Christ. He gave his glory. Jesus never ceased to be God. When he died on the cross, it's the church of God which he bought with his own blood. When he died on the cross, it was the God-man who was dying. He made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. He did not take advantage of his position. He sacrificed himself and was prepared to be humiliated. He poured out himself. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This was not Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to bend down to you and I'm going to help you with my strength. This was Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to become you. If if you want to use an extreme image, but I think it, it works, it's not someone going to the drug addict and saying, I'm going to help you with your drug addiction. It's someone becoming the drug addict. That is what Jesus did. He humbled himself. And Paul's writing this here, by the way, to say that's to be our attitude. As as God, Christ owned everything. As man, he owned nothing. He had no pillow on which to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat. He had to borrow a pulpit. He even had to borrow a donkey for transport. He even had to borrow a tomb. He became a servant, devoted to others, to the disregard of one's own interests. I think as well in this, there's something more. It's the opposite of the Adam story. Adam is in reverse. This is Adam in reverse. Adam in pride sought to become God. Christ in humanity, uh, in humility, becomes human. This is our story, the story of human beings. We were made to be with God, but we turned away from God. And so God sent his son to become one of us that we might be turned back to God. Christ became a human being. That would be enough. But look at the end of verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. We use the phrase Christ-like. People will will sometimes in discussion say, that's not very Christian. That's not very Christ-like. What do we mean? What, What is the quality of Christ that we admire most? It's this. You get people saying, oh, I wish Christians could be more like Jesus. I like Jesus. I don't like Christians. Well, what is the characteristic of Christ that is most to be admired? He lived a life of complete obedience to God. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard... Because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of, e- of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's the obedience of Christ, his obedience even to the point of death. A death of unimaginable pain and shame. A death about which he knew in the Hebrew Scriptures, you must not leave his body on a tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Jesus became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. (coughs) Galatians 3.13. Strange, isn't it, how the cross has become a piece of jewelry. How the cross has become something that people want tattooed on their arms. Or the cross has become something that we, we say is beautiful and admirable. But the cross wasn't. The Roman writer Cicero, politician, said this, Far be the very name of the cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. When these early Christians said Jesus obeyed so that he was hung on a cross, the Romans who would read this, the educated people in the Roman Empire who would read this, and not just the educated They would look at Jesus and they would say, he must have been the absolute scum of the earth. In uh, John Updike's book, The Terrorist, he writes this, to worship a God known to have died, the very idea affects Ahmed like an elusive stench, a stoppage in the plumbing, a dead rodent in the walls. To Muslims, the idea of a crucified God is horrific. To Jews, the idea of a crucified God is horrific. To secularists and atheists, the idea of the cross is horrific and contemptible and laughable. But to the Christian, it's something we glory in. Why? Melito of Sardis in the second century said this, He that hung, upon the, he that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails. He that bore up the earth was born upon a tree. The Lord of all was subjected to ignominy in a naked body. God put to death. The King of Israel slain with Israel's right hand. I think C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Tales, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, with the the slaying of Aslan captures something of the wonder and the horror of it. And I suspect that those of us who are Christians, we're so used to hearing the words and so used to, to knowing that the cross is central to our faith that we, we miss very often the absolute wonder of it all, that the one who's in very nature God humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, it's so important for so many reasons. First of all, if you're here and you're not a Christian… We're asking you to come to the one who died for his people, not to come to a God who is distant and far away, who you have to earn your way to, but to the God who came to us. And for those of us who are Christians and we're laboring under the guilt and the pressure of our own sin and our own circumstances, and we're asking God to help us, We need to do what we will do this evening, sit at the Lord's table and reflect upon the fact that God has helped us, that this is what he has done. There is nothing so horrible in this world as the cross of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing so glorious and so beautiful. Well, we'll see a little bit more about that in a moment, but we're going to sing uh, these verses, actually. They've been put in a paraphrased form. We're going to sing them to the tune Salzburg. Adopt the attitude of Christ, who, though in nature God, refused to keep his rightful state as equal with the Lord. Let's stand and sing this, and then we'll just look at the the last few verses of it. Please, we see it. We just turn to verses nine to eleven before um, we finish. Nobody likes being defeated. Um, If you're a Dundee fan, you are well used to it. You'd be one of the most humble people in the world, I think. I was at Den's Park yesterday, and I knew within the first five minutes we were going to lose, and yet loyally I hung on almost till the end. Um, There are some of you here who are Rangers fans, and you could hardly keep the smile off your face because you like winning. You don't like being defeated, and you've lost the last zillion times to your rivals. We don't like being defeated, but I was reading this morning Chrysostom, the Greek, preacher the ancient greek preacher and he talks about how victory can be hollow and how a defeat sometimes is a real blessing and he's talking in particular he said there are some of you who are victorious and you're like mighty soldiers and you're very wealthy and he said and he says that it is it is a chain around your neck your wealth has not blessed you. In fact, the opposite. You're worried about losing it. You're worried about how you can get more. You're worried about people taking it away from you. You're not sure if people are your friends because you've got this wealth. And then he talks about those who have been defeated. And he says, the poor who come into this church are blessed. Why are they blessed? They're blessed because they have nothing to hold them back from Christ. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan is slain, the the uh, Snow Queen, the White Queen, uh, her, her followers are rejoicing because Aslan has been destroyed, but he hasn't because he rises from the dead. The humiliation of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is at one level the ultimate defeat, and his followers must have felt that enormously, to be cursed by God in this way, to be hung upon a tree, to be defeated after performing all these miracles, to have this wonderful teaching and yet be crucified by the people you gave that teaching to. It just seems defeat, 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 defeat. We read in, in, Sheila read in the passage on Acts that even the early Christians, where they saw so many good things, they were told, It's through many hardships we enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have been taught a theology which says this, I'm a Christian. I have the victory all the time. No, you don't. You're a Christian. You're a loser. You're often going to lose. You're going to lose many things. There are Christians here who have lost their health or losing your health, and somehow you think it's because there's something wrong with you. No, it's not because there's something wrong with you. There are some of you who have lost really tough battles, and you wonder, if God is on your side, how come you lose? And yet, there is a, a profound sense in which we have got this so, so wrong. Because the story has not finished, and the end has not played out. And we talk about victory, but what kind of victory are we talking about? And it's this, surely, Jesus Christ, verses 9 to 11, is to be worshipped. God exalted him to the highest place. He is to be worshipped because of what he did. He emptied himself. He was obedient. He was not like the sacrifice of the Old Testament animals who went unknowingly and unwillingly. I'm just reading stories. Uh, I read uh, a huge book on the Battle of the Somme by um, Hugh Montefiore, I mean, that was my Christmas wreath. It was so depressing. It really was. I don't know why I did it, but I just it was so, so sad, so depressing. And all these soldiers, these Scottish soldiers and Australian and New Zealand and South African and African and uh, soldiers who were on the battlefield in the Somme. And that, that one day, that first day, I think it was the 14th of July, where 45,000 of them were killed as they went over trenches to be shot at and killed knowing that this was going to happen. And sometimes we refer to them when we would say to them, they were heroes who sacrificed themselves. No, they didn't. They didn't want to go. They were sensible people. There were lots of stories of soldiers who shot themselves in the foot or deserted and tried to escape. They didn't want to go. They knew they were going to die. They didn't willingly. No, you don't willingly do that. But Jesus did. Why? He knew what he's doing. He had a mind. You look at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to understand the agony that he went through. The hardest decisions, probably the most valuable decisions you ever have to make are the hardest ones. Anyone who tells you that big decisions are easy, that's not true. Sometimes it, it is really hard. And for Jesus to make this decision to obey, it was not easy. Gordon Fee says this about what Paul is teaching here. Paul believed that in Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God has been revealed ultimately and finally. God is not a grasping, self-centered being, but is most truly known through the one who himself in the form of God and thus equal with God, poured out himself in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave whose love for his human creatures found its consummate expression in his death on a cross. That's the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Do you know who the greatest people I think in our culture are today? They're not the ones who are the big heroes at sport or or the, the, the great political leaders. They're not the ones who boast about themselves being great or their countries being great. I'll tell you who they are. They are the unsung heroes. They are the husband whose wife suffers from dementia and doesn't even know who she is, and he cleans up after her. That's heroic. That's service. Do you know who the greatest people in the church are? Not the people who stand up at the front. Not the people who, who, who get the name for being great leaders because great leaders are really meant to be servants but they are those who serve. John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he was coming from God and was returning to God. So get that. Jesus knew that he had everything. He knew that he had all the power. He knew that almost like some kind of Marvel super comic hero, he could go zap and that would happen. He could do it. But look what John goes on to say. He knew this, so he got up from the meal took off all his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into, ba- into a basin and to began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's interesting how we turn that into something rather pleasant and lovely. Disciples have been walking. Their feet, in a good Scots term, would be minging. And Jesus bends down and does what only the lowest servant would be paid to do. He willingly washes the feet of his own disciples. And then at verse 14, he says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Look to the interests of others, says Paul. Jesus is given the name that is above every name. The name reflects who the person is and the power and the worth and the dignity of the person given the name of Christ. What does that mean? Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's an interesting verse in Isaiah 45:23. By the way, those Christians who say, I'm not interested in the Old Testament, I'm just interested in the New, you have no hope of understanding the New if you don't know the Old. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where does that come from? Isaiah 45, verse 23. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. These are words that are used of the Father God, and now they are deliberately being used of Christ. The glory of Jesus now is wonderful. Do you know this? It is, if we can say this, more wonderful now than it was before. Why? Because the glory came down. Because the glory knelt and washed his disciples' feet. Because the glory suffered on a cross in the most inglorious way. Revelation 5.13, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Here's this extraordinary thing. We worship a Jesus who served us and who died for us and yet is the most glorious being in the whole universe that we cannot even conceive of. And thus, to be a Christian is very simply to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a couple of weeks in Romans 10, we'll come to this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's an interesting, as some of you know, I do a fair amount of time um, debating with uh, non-Christians and atheists. And one of the things that's often said or quoted are the words of Burton Russell, where he says, he's asked, what would you do if, if on the day of judgment you meet God? What would you ask him? And Russell arrogantly and contemptuously says, I would ask him, why didn't you make yourself better known? And any of us who know our Bibles know Russell will not be doing anything of the sort. You do not negotiate with God. What will happen is simply this. I I will tell this to every single one of you here, and to anyone in this city, and anyone in this country, and anyone throughout the world. Every single person here, I know two things about you. One, you're going to die. And two, you are going to bow the knee before Jesus Christ. In one of two ways, you will either do so before you die or you will do so on the day of judgment. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will come a day when every knee bow, every tongue confess, but that will not be a saving confession. All will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved because today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to confess and be saved, to confess Christ as Lord and our need of Him. New Year for me is always special because it was the time as a 16-year-old boy I realized that I had to make up my mind whether to acknowledge Jesus as Lord or to turn away from Him. And from that day, many years ago, I've never regretted acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord because I've always known that one day I would have to anyway. And to acknowledge him as Lord willingly, knowing that he has died, knowing that this whole world increasingly does not make sense, but only makes sense in the light of the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, is something that is wonderful. I hope you had a great Christmas, but I tell you this, you will never get a greater gift than when you receive Jesus Christ. Just a couple of other things. This here is not setting the father against the son. It is to the glory of God the father that every tongue acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. In our families, we have jealousies. You have to be quite careful that you don't give one child a greater present than the other. There can be jealousies. You have to be careful with parents. You know, the, the mom gets this and the dad, what does he get? A pair of socks. That's it. You know, love your dad and mum gets, you know, I don't know, gold jewellery or something. Um, this is not, by the way, speaking from personal experience and bitterness. I'm not venting here. Um, it's, but you, you do. We have to be careful because human beings get so jealous. But within the family of the Trinity, if you want to put it that way, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, within the fellowship of the Trinity, there's just absolute perfect love. That's how we know who God, that God is love. It's not just that he gives love, that he is love. It's because of that perfect relationship. It is to the glory of God the Father. The glory of Jesus is not independent of the Father. I think even that, all these statements are are reminding us about the need to put aside disunity and discord and personal ambition. We don't seek our own glory. We seek the glory of others, but above all, we seek the glory of Jesus Christ. The ascension and the exaltation of Christ means that Jesus is Lord, and it means that we serve him what did Christ say? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's why church leaders who, who dress up in, in robes and gold and finery and, and, and exalt themselves, that's so against what Christ says. Humble yourself, says Peter, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's why when really bad things happen to you in this coming year, which they will do for most of us here, thank the Lord we don't know what's going to happen. There are going to be really good things happen and there's going to be really bad things happen, and we don't know. But when the bad things happen, as well as the good things, we need to humble ourselves and realize that this world is a messed up place and that Only Christ is the one who can save us from it. So I leave you with that. We are to imitate the humility of Christ because it's a real thing. It's a real reality. But I think perhaps most of all, I would just simply say to those of you who are not Christians, seek Christ while he may be found. Seek him while it's still the day of salvation. You'll never lose out by doing that. And to those of us who are Christians... Maybe we need to take a tumble to ourselves. Do you know what we've done? We've made ourselves the Lord and we've made the Lord the servant. Lord, what can you give me? Lord, what can you do for me? Lord, what will you? Instead, we should just simply saying, Lord, what can I do for you? That's what John Flavel, in a, a little prayer that I memorized because it just had such a profound impact on, on me, he just simply said, Lord, whatever I am, I am for you. Whatever I can do, I will do for you. And it wasn't crushingly subservient. It's just something that's joyful. It's just something that's liberating. It's just something that absolutely sets you free. We are set free to serve the living God. My hope and prayer is that all of us as Christians will increasingly develop this mindset and attitude of Christ so that we won't do things in order to show off. We won't do things even in order to witness. We will do things because we have the heart of Christ, and that itself will be such a shining example in a world which is obsessed with greed and lust and selfishness when God's people go the very opposite way. May God bless His Word to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we do pray that those of us who as yet don't know, you would come to see something of your beauty and glory, that you died for us, that you became one of us, that you took upon us our sin, you became sin for us, you who knew no sin. Lord, help each one of us to see that. And Lord, I pray that you would be with those of us who are Christians that as we struggle and sometimes seem overwhelmed by the sorrows and the struggles of this life, that we would not be overcome by anger or bitterness or despair, but that instead we would look to Christ who went down into the deepest pit that he might lift us up. Lord, we thank you that wherever you take us, wherever you let us go, there is no pit so deep that you have not been there already and that you are not there with us. So bless us as we go from this place with thankful hearts. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing a song when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We'll stand to sing and then please remain standing for the benediction and tea and coffee will be served afterwards. If you've got any questions or comments, Uh, Please feel free to just speak to us at the door and may the Lord richly bless you as you go from this place. Let's stand and sing.